From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Yes, Colorado has a state veterinarian, and for the first time, she's a woman. Today, meet Dr. Maggie Baldwin. I don't know even if my parents know exactly what I do (laughs) on a daily basis. Um, So my job, you can think of it as protecting Colorado's herd. From disaster and disease, like a sickness ravaging rabbits, it arrived about the same time as COVID. It's a highly fatal, highly contagious disease of both wild and domestic rabbits. We'll also discuss climate change, how animal health is public health, I asked Dr. Baldwin about the governor's call for more meatless meals and the story of the horse that led her to become a vet. As a member, you are essential because you help make the statewide news and music service possible. Nearly 50% of CPR members are sustaining Evergreen members who keep programming strong month after month. It's easy and affordable to join them and start giving monthly today. If you're already giving, please consider increasing your existing gift by a few dollars a month. Thank you for keeping the news and music going strong. Make your gift now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Morner. If there's one thing COVID-19 showed us clear as day, it's that diseases in wild animals can spread to people, devastating lives and economies. It's against that backdrop that Dr. Maggie Baldwin becomes Colorado's new state veterinarian, the first woman to hold that job. Her role is under the State Agriculture Department and helps protect the health of animals of the four- and two-legged variety. I asked Dr. Baldwin what, if anything, she's learned in the pandemic. I think that there's a lot of increased focus on preparedness against diseases that that we, A, don't have in this country, B, want to keep out of this country, or C, don't even know exist yet. You know, SARS-CoV-2, the novel virus that causes COVID-19, was something that was not really known to exist. Coronaviruses in general were, um, but we, we didn't have any experience with this virus in particular. So I think it's given us a lot of experience in novel disease response. So we have some diseases that we know exist, and we call them foreign animal diseases that we don't have in the United States. Uh Things like foot and mouth disease, African swine fever, highly pathogenic avian influenza that you know impact our livestock industries. So those are things we know don't exist um, here in the United States. We want to keep them out with good biosecurity practices and what happens if they come into our state um, or our country and trying to get emergency preparedness and response plans in place ahead of time is going to be really, really important. So we know if they come here, this is how we're going to respond. One thing that we did during the COVID-19 pandemic in people is implemented stay-at-home orders. That's very similar to what we plan on doing um, in our livestock species. If we get a detection of something like foot and mouth disease or African swine fever, we'll put a pause on animal movement until we get you know, the epidemiology and really understand where it came from and how we can stop the spread. And is it likely then that the site of detection would be a ranch and would be a rancher conducting that test? 
So good question. Um, For foreign animal diseases, we rely on our eyes and ears in the field is our producers and our veterinarians, our private practicing veterinarians. They're the ones that are going to see something first. And of course, they know about foreign animal diseases and and are aware of some of the clinical signs that we might see in our animals, Um, but they always call us. And we have experts, um, we have field veterinarians, and they're trained foreign animal disease diagnosticians. And they can um, go out and look at those animals and look in the field and gather those samples for diagnostic testing. Um, But they are eyes and ears in the field. Now, I understand what it means to monitor for something whose existence you know of. It Mm -hmm. seems a totally different animal, no pun intended, to monitor for a disease you don't even know exists. How how would that work? Yeah. So a lot of things that, you know, novel diseases, they're discovered because something doesn't quite look right. You know, we see clinical signs that don't fit a different disease, or we see high um, morbidity and mortality, meaning that there's a lot of animals affected or a lot of animals that are dying. Usually veterinarians and producers, when there's something that doesn't quite look right, that doesn't quite fit a normal disease that we have, they'll call us. And we can say, you know, let's do some additional diagnostic testing on that. Same with COVID-19. When that first started um, overseas, it was something didn't quite fit right. They were seeing a lot of human cases of respiratory disease, and they did additional testing, and they found a novel virus. So it's going to happen the same way um, in, in the animal population. Now, listen, livestock is quite valuable, and it's obviously critical to the food supply. So there are the fundamental concerns about the health of livestock in and of itself. But do you look to these potential cases with the concern that they might jump to people? Is that a kind of underpinning of all of this monitoring? So good question. I mean, a lot of the foreign animal diseases that we deal with, they're high consequence diseases, they're high morbidity, high mortality in our animal species. So things like foot and mouth disease and African swine fever, we know they do not affect people. Um, We do have zoonotic diseases, meaning diseases that can um, jump between animals and humans, (laughs) the four-legged and the two-legged. Things like highly pathogenic avian influenza would be one. Not all strains of avian influenza can jump to people, but certain ones can. And so that early detection and, you know, getting those scientists looking at those viruses right away is going to be important. It is remarkable to think how much of disease monitoring rests on the back of everyday folks Uh, literally, in the field. And I think if the pandemic has taught us one thing, it's how interconnected we are. Uh, And that's true, I think, in in this case as well. I am going to venture a guess, Dr. Maggie Baldwin, that at least some of the people you meet don't know the state even has uh, an anointed veterinarian. Yes. How, in general, do you describe your role to people? Well... Ryan, that's a good point. And I don't know even if my parents know exactly what I do (laughs) on a daily basis. Um, So my job is to, you can think of it as protecting Colorado's herd. So our job is to protect the health and well-being and welfare of Colorado's herd on a you know statewide basis. So not really looking at a single animal or a single premises, but we, we do that, I guess, 
through a lot of means. One, we have import requirements for animals coming into the state. We require a certificate of veterinary inspection to, that a veterinarian has looked at those animals before they move into our state and verified that they're healthy. And they meet our testing requirements and our vaccination requirements. We respond to our endemic diseases, so things like rabies, tuberculosis, brucellosis. If we have suspected cases or reported cases to our office, we respond to those and control that disease on an animal or premises basis. Right. I'm used um, to getting lots of press releases, actually, about the detection of yeah. rab- in rabies, for instance, in yeah. some particular animal in some community. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So that's our goal is really to just protect the health and welfare of our herd. Agriculture is one of Colorado's largest industries, and climate change threatens it. How do you see your role as state veterinarian in fighting, combating climate change? It's something that we don't directly deal with, um, but I would say indirectly. So there's been, you know, some studies. We actually just a couple years ago at one of our national associations, one of the entire um, presentations was focused on disease ecology associated with climate change. That means our, our vector populations that carry diseases can change things like ticks, mosquitoes, flies that carry diseases. So that's one way is continuing to to monitor our diseases that we deal with in the state veterinarian's office. The other way that we're, I would say, tangentially associated with that would be our, our response and emergency management to wildfires, floods, blizzards, tornadoes that are, you know, directly um, weather related. And we should say in in the case of wildfire, there often have to be evacuations of livestock. And then in severe blizzards, there are concerns about food supply for Mm -hmm. animals. Yep. Yep, exactly. So in 2020 alone, Colorado saw three, the three largest wildfires in our state's history. So when the the state emergency operations center is activated for something like a wildfire, that's exactly what we deal with, Ryan, is things like evacuation of livestock, making sure that we are coordinating with local officials to get livestock and trailers and farmers and ranchers, um, not only what they need to evacuate their animals, but the access to the roads that they need to evacuate their animals. We also have some people in the Department of Agriculture that are on the state's drought task force, um, which is another really big thing that we've been dealing with for years in Colorado, um, and it looks like we'll continue to deal with. I mean, drought's so critical because of feed, essentially, of, of mm-hmm. grazing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, That's exactly right. And, and drinking, I suppose, for livestock mm-hmm. as well. Uh, Dr. Maggie Baldwin, state veterinarian, you've talked about your role as protecting the herd. One message coming from the state uh, via the governor is to eat less red meat, to eat less of the herd, I suppose. That message sent beef producers reeling. Under the Ag Department, those producers are your constituents. We've talked about as well the balance of climate change, which can be connected to what we eat and what we grow. What's your take on this? Um, you know, that's a that's a tough question. <laughs> um, it, you know, I, I think our Colorado farmers and ranchers raise healthy beef, and um, it's a personal choice if you eat beef or not. Um, but but our role is to make sure that 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 herd is healthy. When, when uh, Governor Polis made this plea, is it something that you personally integrated into your own habits? 
Um, as far as reducing your meat intake. I don't, I don't know that, that ours has, has changed really. I've got two um, growing teenage boys <laughs> and um, you know, I don't know that we've changed our daily practices as far as how much meat that we eat. We have touched uh, indeed on disease and I want to make note of the fact that you've done a lot of work with rabbit hemorrhagic disease, which mm-hmm. I understand is only newly identified. Yeah. What what threats does it pose? Yeah, so rabbit hemorrhagic disease is something we've now been dealing with in Colorado for a little over a year. The, the first detection was in New Mexico in March of 2020, and our first detection in Colorado was early April 2020, initially in a wild rabbit in southern Colorado. Um, it's a highly fatal, highly contagious disease of both wild and domestic rabbits. So now since last summer, since summer of 2020, we've really been in this, what USDA has classified as a stable endemic phase. We, along with a lot of other Western states, um, and that means that it's in the wild population. So our goal is to promote biosecurity practices, promote good husbandry to try and keep it out of our domestic population. Um, So we've actually learned that we have a a fair number of rabbits in Colorado. That's something that we track on a routine basis in our office. Do you mean to say um, wild and domestic? I would say both. Yeah. So the way that we've been handling this disease outbreak is Colorado Parks and Wildlife is working on the wild rabbit side. And then we at the Department of Agriculture respond to the domestic cases. And those there, I mean, there's significant concerns because it is highly fatal. Um, A a lot of rabbits, 50% or more on um, the premises that we have detected, they do succumb to the disease. So it's it's highly fatal and, and usually right away after detection. And I suspect from the name, it leads to some sort of hemorrhaging for yep. a rabbit. Yep, internal hemorrhage Yep, is, is what happens in these rabbits. And how is it that it winds up in domesticated rabbits? Yeah, so the virus itself is a very, very hardy virus. It lives for weeks to months in, in the environment. So a lot of the cases that we've had, um, the owners have you know, let the rabbits graze outside or they're housed in outdoor hutches. Um, and so the virus that's present in our wild rabbits can easily um, get into the domestic rabbits that are housed outside or allowed to go outside for grazing. But it can also be tracked in on shoes. Um, it can come in if you're storing hay outside that then you bring inside to feed to your rabbits. Um, that's a you know risky connection because wild rabbits will probably be around that hay supply in, in the outdoor areas. Um, so it's something that like I said, very hardy virus in the environment. Are there larger uh, human concerns related to this? I mean, obviously, one's rabbit is uh, a precious being, but um, are, are there broader concerns? So there's not, it's not a zoonotic disease. So we don't have to worry about people getting the, the virus itself. Um, you know, long term, ecologically, when we look at the impacts of this has on wild rabbits and having large wild rabbit die-offs due to rabbit hemorrhagic disease, of course, there's some sort of imbalance, you know, environmentally with our predator and prey, the predators that eat rabbits as prey. Um, you know, if we have large die-offs in that area, that could be one impact. Also, large, long-term or, or big picture, it's a reportable disease to OIE, which is the World Organization for Animal Health. 
So it does have trade impacts for, you know, the, oh. the United States globally. Um, but that, because we're now in this stable endemic phase, I don't know that that's going to change much in the future. Dr. Baldwin, before we go, what's the first animal you remember grabbing at your heartstrings? Um, you know, I... I knew from a young age that I was going to be a veterinarian. I, my mom said from the age of three that I, I was going to be a veterinarian. And it wasn't really until I was a teenager, I had my first horse. His name was Regal. I got a companion for him. Her name was Shayla. And she was just the sweetest girl. She was so kind and so friendly. Um, and she had an accident when I was about 16. She had an accident. And at the time, I was, you know, working two or three jobs as a teenager trying to well pay for the care of my horses. <laughs> um, but she needed surgery. And at the time, I didn't have, of course, the money for surgery. But I knew a veterinarian. And he said, well, if you come work for me, I'll do surgery on your horse. And I said, okay, deal. And, um, and I stayed at that clinic until I went to vet school. <laughs> and, um, you know, she brought me not really just into veterinary medicine, but I think helped me get to where I am today. Shayla. Shayla. And Shayla, yeah. Shayla survived this surgery? And, and she did. Yep. She did. And I had her until um, about five years ago. Yep. Yep. She is a great horse. Thank you for being with us. Yep. Yep. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. Dr. Maggie Baldwin is Colorado's new state veterinarian. Our conversation was produced by Carla Jimenez. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I hope that you get news that tells you, hey, this is what my elected representative is doing in D.C. and I needed to know that. Or, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> I didn't know that my elected representative was doing this. Public affairs reporter Caitlin Kim, based in Washington, D.C. You send them there to represent your district or the state of Colorado, and ultimately you. What are they doing in your name? I think this is all information you need to know, and I hope my reporting helps provide some of that. Listen for the work of the CPR Newsroom every day here on CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a song that generations of kids have learned all over the world about a clock. Here's a 1908 recording by the Haydn Quartet. My grandfather's clock was too large for the shelf, so it turned 90 years on the floor. It was followed by half from the old man himself, so it weighed not a penny weight more. In the 1950s, Burl Ives sang a bittersweet version. His life seconds numbering. But it stopped short, never to go again when the old man died. Well, a real-life clock inspired the song, My Grandfather's Clock. And Dan Parker of Centennial grew up with that clock, which was in, as you might guess, his grandfather's house. This was in Massachusetts. The clock remains in a family home back east. And Dan, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Describe this clock for us. What did it look like? I assume it was quite tall. It was seven feet, four inches tall. Oh. And that extra four inches were a set of three finials that were on the top of the clock, one on each side and one in the middle. Finials, little decorations, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, spiky decorations. 
And those are the original finials that were on the clock when it was built in, sometime in 1790. It must have seemed towering when you were little. Oh, yes. Well, the first time I was aware of it, I was about uh, five years old or so. We lived on the second floor of the farmhouse, and my grandparents, with the clock, lived on the first floor. I'd hear a strike, and that didn't bother me any. But then the first time I saw it, here I was about, oh, I don't know, what, maybe 36, 40 inches tall, <laughs> and look at this thing, and I had to bend just about bend back over to see the top. Did you fear that it would fall over on you? No. Okay. No, I never did that. It was so big, it was, it had the weights. It was an eight-day clock that you had to wind every seven or eight days, or it would stop. Yeah. And that's where the line in the in the song came from, because the clock did stop the afternoon that the old man died, because the old man was the only one that wound that clock. And he'd wound it a week before, and he became sick and died on the eighth day, and the clock stopped. Oh, it's helpful to have that background. What did it yeah. sound like? You mentioned the chime of it. It wasn't real loud. It was a chime rather than a bell. How did the clock come into your family's possession? What's the deal here? Well, it was built and bought by a family member around 1790, 1792, something like that. We don't have any first-hand account of who, who bought it and when. We just have to go by the clues that the song gives us. Oh, the song gives you a clue. Yeah, 90 years it stood on the, car, on the floor. Yeah. That's the clue. And that was in 1876 or maybe a year or two earlier. No, that's exactly right. The song was written by Henry C. Work in 1876. He also, by the way, wrote Wake Nicodemus and The Ship That Never Returned. I understand that uh, the composer, Mr. Work, had a tie to your family. What was that tie? He was, he was married to my second great aunt. And then he somehow learned about this imposing well, clock. They, they would come to visit her folks, and it was right there. The <laughs> clock was right there in the house. And so imposing, in fact, that he wrote a song about it. And, yeah. and the song really is kind of a mini biography of a grandfather, uh, seemingly told through the eyes of a child. Now, the clock has moved a lot over the years. It usually follows the male heir in your family. The eldest son. The eldest son. I'll say that despite a, a lack of family documentation, the Smithsonian has said that your family's clock is indeed the one the song is based on. So the clock remains in Massachusetts, right? You didn't bring it out yeah. to Colorado. Why, why not bring it out here? Well, because it spent its entire life in a, cl a humid climate yeah, <laughs> and something that's over 2,000 miles away. And we were afraid if we moved it out here, it would not stand the move or the relocation. So I signed off, and it went to my younger brother, but mm. it was my turn. And so he's the one that had it, and now he's died, and his oldest son has it. Well, I want to hear now from a Japanese pop singer, Ken Hirai, who performed My Grandfather's Clock, uh, yes. first in Japanese.
That's Ken Hirai. He also does the song My Grandfather's Clock in English. He actually came to the family home in Massachusetts to record that, didn't he? Twice. He came the first time in 2000. And he saw the clock, and my family all got together, and they would sing it to him in English, and he would sing it back to them in Japanese. Hmm. And then he went down to uh, the town in Connecticut where Henry C. worked, grew up in Middletown, Connecticut, and they had a concert down there at the local church uh, with the church choir. He went back to uh, Japan. He cut a single and sold 400,000 copies of the single in less than a year. Wow. And so Sony, who was the sponsor of, the, of Ken, decided that they wanted to have him come back over and, and sing at the clock on New Year's Eve day huh. here. And it was beamed back to Japan for a New Year's Day celebration. At, early that morning, about 6 o'clock in the morning, my brother woke up and realized it was a whole bunch of people on the road out in front of the house, the farmhouse. And it was fans of this songwriter that had come from Boston and New Haven and, and Hartford and even New York City to see their, their popular singer that they enjoyed. So he had, he had to call the police to close the highway, <laughs> to close the road in front of the house. Dan, uh, the clock has not gone unscathed through That's the right. years. I understand there was a little accident at one point. Yes. Young lady was driving up the highway, uh, the road up to the, toward the house. There was a curve in the road about, uh, I don't know, 50 yards out from the house. And she, this was at one o'clock in the morning. She fell asleep and she didn't make that turn. The car came across the field between two great big elm, uh, maple trees and hit to the corner of the house where the clock was. It destroyed the case, but it didn't damage the works, and it didn't break even break the finials on the top, but it shattered the case, and the pendulum went across the room, through the wall, right across the bedroom where my parents were sleeping below in the bed, and lodged in the outside wall of the house. Wow! The next day, they picked up all the pieces from the clock and spread them out on the barn floor, then they got a, a cabinet maker from the Berkshires that came down and he said, I can rebuild that clock. You've collected a lot of memorabilia through the years. Um, yes. I, I can hear your love for this clock. Why is it so important to you, do you think? Well, I'm a history buff. Hmm. And I'm kind of the family historian. And my wife is a genealogist and she's the family genealogist. So between the two of us, we collected a good deal of the uh, memorabilia that we could find. Dan, do you miss the clock? Is it hard to be away from it? Uh, well, yeah, it's difficult to be away from it, but I'm so happy I'm not living in New England. <laughs> I like to visit New England, but I don't want to live it there. Well, that seems like a perfect way to... And an interview for Colorado Matters. Thanks so much, Dan. I appreciate you spending the time with us. Okay. Dan Parker lives at the Holly Creek Retirement Community in Centennial. He grew up with the clock that inspired the song My Grandfather's Clock. We spoke in March. Michelle P. Fulcher produced that conversation. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. My grandfather. 
his clock was too large for the shelf, so it stood ninety years on the floor.